Welcome to episode number 81, The Trouble with Sin. I'm your host, Damon Soka. What is sin? Now, I know that we often think the answer is fairly easy, but when you really sit down and think about it, your answer could be far more interesting and complex than you realize. There is a story in the New Testament that you probably know. The disciples and Jesus come upon a blind man born into the affliction. He was born blind. The Jews had some interesting thoughts on infants born with disabilities, and you do hear it in the disciples' questions. Now, the disciples asked a very interesting question. They asked the Savior if the blind man himself had sinned, or if his parents had sinned and caused the blindness or disability, and they gave no other option. The Savior, of course, stated that neither was true, and that he was blind so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. A direct quote from the scripture. While that statement seems a little vague, the basic underlying principle is that the blindness was to be a teaching tool for the man, a weakness that would allow him to grow. But his weakness is actually not my topic today. My topic is the disciples' question and the idea of sin. And these short verses in John give us a good starting point for the discussion. What is sin? And what does it mean to sin? How does sin even relate to mental illness or a disability? Now, because of the nature of emotions induced by mental illness, sin is actually a very important topic to us. Depression and anxiety both bring out feelings of doubt, pain, questioning, and darkness. The emotional symptoms of these illnesses can feel identical to sin in many ways. I struggled deeply with the definition of sin when I suffered with bipolar. And I actually think that many of us do. And sometimes it's not just those of us who suffer. I think we struggle to understand it from a practical and theological viewpoint. I don't necessarily think that it's a difficult concept, but sometimes the application of the theology of sin can be far more nuanced. And that is especially true when discussing mental illness. So today we're going to talk about sin, its theory, and application to our lives, and more especially to our lives when we are in the throes of an episode of mental illness. So let's return to the first example today, the man born blind. There are actually several interesting concepts regarding the nature of sin, justice, and punishment contained in this short story. First, the question, did the man or his parents sin? Now, inherent in the question are some interesting beliefs surrounding the Jewish society, that we struggle with at times in our own modern world. The first inherent belief was that was man was this man being punished for his own sin, meaning in essence the blindness was a punishment for some type of sin he had committed. While punishment for sin is really not a new concept, the question posed a more interesting idea. If the man had sinned and his punishment was blindness, then there is only one possible way that he could have sinned and been punished with that blindness occur in pre-mortal life. The disciples were asking if the blindness was a punishment for something the man had done in pre-mortality. Now, while the Savior answered no, that he was not punished for something he had done in the pre-mortal life, the answer is actually a little more nuanced than no, if we read deeper into the scriptures that we have received in our time. In Abraham chapter 3, 23, we actually learn of an interim judgment that occurred in the pre-mortal life, meaning that we were judged but it was not a final judgment. But this judgment was used, or this judgment of worthiness, was used for various spiritual intelligences. Now that judgment was used to 
choose mortality's leadership, such as Adam, Isaiah, the Savior, Joseph Smith, and many of the leaders of the church and of various countries. And well, if you really think about it, almost everyone who has held an influential position among mankind. It does not appear from the record that any punishments were given at the time of the judgment except for Lucifer and his followers, who were punished with no access to mortality and eventually immortality. However, what can be inferred from the scripture is that sin did exist before this earth, and that the more righteous were called as leaders to help those who may not have been as diligent in their assigned duties before this earth. Where there is agency, there is sin, and there was agency before this earth. But the most important concept garnered from this idea of man's premortal sin is that disabilities, mental or otherwise, are not punishments for sin from our previous spiritual existence and agency. We were absolved absolved from our sins and were again brought to an innocent state in mortality. You actually find this doctrine taught in Doctrine and Covenants 93.38. This specifically states that we were innocent entering this world. While we can reasonably be sure that punishments were not instituted as part of our mortal existence and trials, we can be sure that blessings were provided, such as membership in the Lord's Church from birth, learning about the gospel of Jesus Christ while young, and other such blessings. Now, we must be careful, though, in the blessings, not to assume that someone not born into the church was punished in some way. We do not know the full intention and mind of God in his quest for the immortality and eternal life of man. What we can be sure of is that the Lord provides for the best environment he can based on the division of families that was accomplished before this earth and then makes up the difference through grace for those who were born into less desirable circumstances. Now, returning to the original answer from the Savior, the second part of the answer also taught something very important about sin. We are not punished in any way for sin committed by our parents. Their sin does not trickle down to the children from the debts owed by the parents. The second article of faith is actually very clear on that matter. We do not receive punishment from our parents' sins. Okay, now that we have established that idea of culpability, this is actually too a little bit nuanced, and you need to look just a bit deeper. While we don't pay for our parents' sins, we often learn sin through our parents. Now, the culpability for this teaching of sin by the parents is laying squarely upon the parents until such time as the child or adult, as ever the case, however the case may be, has been taught correct principles. Once the individual has been taught and understands the truth, then the sin is now upon their own heads. So we cannot rightly say that our parents are going to pay for every wrong thing we did because they erred in teaching us. Once we know the truth, then our parents' responsibility ends and and that sin becomes our own. So while we may be be taught incorrect principles, each will have correct ones taught to them and have the opportunity to accept or reject the true teachings of Jesus Christ. So now, given those scriptures, we have some fairly good background about sin from which we can actually move forward. First of all, we are innocent once born on this earth, and our previous sins, whatever they were, have been absolved. Now, I could say pretty confidently that this is part of what the atonement accomplished, not only absolving our earthly sins, but our pre-earthly ones as well. Second, we only pay the penalty of sin once we are taught correct principles in some manner. 
So here then is the first real requirement to be able to sin. One must understand correct principles and choose against those principles to sin. Sin requires correct knowledge or truth, the ability to discern that truth, and the ability to act upon knowledge. Sin also requires understanding not just correct knowledge, but knowledge of good and evil. Now, okay, that probably really isn't earth-shattering. We've probably been taught that from a very young, but it's actually profoundly important to our topic today. Now, what is the meaning of correct principles when we say correct principles? If I ask a group of membership of the church, what does it mean to live by correct principles? Now, I would likely get the common primary answer, well, the commandments are the correct principles, right? Can I say I do not like the commandments answer? It's vague and leaves far too many things open for interpretation. And when you say it, what do you mean? Most people, if I ask you for clarification, then refer to the Ten Commandments, which is actually a pretty good start. Then they might include the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Again, a good foundation. But those commandments certainly do not spell out exactly how I am to handle every instance where I have to choose between good and evil, and often between good and better. How do I apply commandments to everyday life? Now, before I get too far into that question, let's look at some gospel stories that give us some important clues and context to the idea of sin. The first is Nephi, when he was commanded to kill Laban and then lie to Laban's servant and then basically steal the plates. If I have the count correct, he violated at least three of the major Ten Commandments, and probably more based on interpretation and meaning. Yet this sequence of actions was not counted unto Nephi as sin. Now, my second story is of Cain, who made an offering to the Lord. Cain made his offering to the Lord as required by the commandments given to Adam. There was no sin in the outward offering. Yet from the Lord's perspective, his offering was sin and a serious one. While Cain's outward actions were correct, Cain was not sacrificing for virtuous reasons, but for selfish ones. And so it was counted unto him for sin. Finally, Abraham, who was commanded to sacrifice his son. While Abraham was asked to defy what would be at least one of the Ten Commandments, they actually had not been written yet, he was only asked to be entirely willing, but not required to actually go through with the action. If we look at each of the scenarios, two of them, prophets or potential prophets, were asked directly by the Lord to forego long-held commandments and to move forward with particular actions that would seem to be serious sin by the outward manifestation. Now, the Cain scenario is actually just the opposite side of the equation. Cain was asked to bring forth a sacrifice based on the commandment given to Adam regarding the first fruits. Cain brought forth his sacrifice, but while the outward action was true or appeared to be true, the inward intention was anything but true. Now, the common denominator in all three of these cases was the motivation for obedience. It was the motivation that determined the virtuous or evil nature of the obedience, not necessarily the action itself. So, in observing this, sin requires at least two elements to be present. One, the inward intent, that one being more important than the other, which is the outward action, but it is not exclusive. The motivation for obedience must be evil for the act to be sin, and it does not matter what the action is if the motivation is evil. Now, Nephi's and Abraham's commandments fall outside of the normal, and in many ways they were exceptional. 
it would be very, very rare for a regular member of the church or any member of the church to be asked to break the commandments to demonstrate loyalty and obedience with proper intent. So we can disregard the idea of being asked to forego the commandments by the Lord and say, in order for us to sin, a regular member must break a commandment, no matter their intent for breaking the commandment, or obey a commandment with anything other than true faith in our Father in heaven. When we discuss the various reasons for committing sin or allowing it to occur, it actually can be pretty easy to demonstrate how the various kingdoms of glory come about, meaning that intent and action both matter very much, and that there are degrees of glory based on various intentions and actions. Now, of course, there is no way to commit adultery with the correct motivation, so many actions matter just as much as the motivation, simply because they cannot be committed and maintain the appropriate faith in God. Okay, with a good understanding of sin, let's talk about mental illness and how sin interacts with someone afflicted by depression, bipolar, or anxiety. Now, I know that I've discussed this at length in my podcast, but it bears repeating. Mental illness directly affects the motivation centers of the brain and the emotional foundations of the brain. So when we talk about sin and mental illness, it is very important to understand that the mentally ill person does not have full control or full emotional or motivational control. What also bears repeating is the mental illness changes the reality the person sees or perceives. Mental illness is a motivational state and a reality. Mentally ill persons see everything in life through the lens of depression or anxiety or the highs and lows of bipolar. Now, I can obviously only speak from my experience and what I have felt and seen during my periods of anxiety and depression and mania. But as I have experienced mental illness and the various lenses through which I have interpreted decisions because of that illness, I have found it almost impossible to do two things. And this is inside of the illness. The first is to act with, act entirely with correct intentions. And the, sect, the second is my ability to use the Holy Ghost to help guide my decision-making process. So for me, there are two different elements at play during our episodes of mental illness when we talk about choices between good and evil. The first is feeling what is true and what to do and to be guided line upon line and precept upon precept. And the second is what I'm going to refer to as the factual side of the commandments. Now, I'm going to start with the factual side of the commandments. That's fairly easy. And that is knowing the facts, figures, and applications of the commandments, the outright commandments, from a point of reason and having had a previous confirmation of their truth. Many of the commandments have fairly easy applications. For instance, do not commit adultery. When we speak, when speaking of the intimate relationships portion of this commandment, Avoiding intimate relationships outside of marriage is factual and very straightforward, and we should not need confirmation every day of our lives not to commit adultery. The same is true for do not steal, do not lie, and for other what we call do commandments. We should go to church, we should read the scriptures, and we should attend the temple regularly. Now from these and many other commandments, there are, arise easy applications that are outward and factual. And we can obey and know what to do when our motivations have been altered. Now, I'm not saying that that is easy. Acting contrary to feelings of depression, deep feelings of depression, anxiety, or mania is a difficult thing to do. And that is especially true when depressions are deep, anxieties are paralyzing, and the mania is just plain bulletproof. 
This does not mean that one cannot be obedient. It is just going to be difficult. Now, these factual or easy application commandments generally do not require a confirmation of what to do or a line upon line or what is true because there's really no need for interpretation of the commandment. Now, certainly the necessary faith will be limited because of our altered motivations, but I do not believe that the Lord would punish anyone for a lack of faith when he's given an illness that significantly alters motivations and faith. Now, I would think that being obedient, even when motivations have been altered by the illness, would be more highly prized and perhaps receive even a greater reward. Now, the second element at play is where the difficulty level increases significantly with mental illness and where I believe that mercy has a very significant role. I've already discussed that motivations are altered during an episode. What is also altered is the ability to hear the Spirit of the Lord or feel the Spirit of the Lord and then to act upon those promptings. So I'm going to go right back to the case of adultery. Adultery, in a more subtle sense, is not just avoiding the act, the actual act of adultery, but developing and nurturing appropriate feelings and relationships with someone to whom you are not married. Understanding how those relationships should be developed requires daily guidance and understanding and generally develops line upon line and based upon personal revelation and continuing adjustments through understanding. This nuanced, subtle, daily guidance is simply very difficult to obtain during episodes in all three types of mental illness, the depression, the anxiety, and the bipolar. My own experience with the feelings in that still small voice, now my own experience with daily guidance was if I didn't, if I did receive guidance, doubts from depression, loud doubts from depression and anxiety would quickly overrun the feelings of the still small voice, and I would be left basically confused. If I were within my mania episode, it was just the opposite. I could not tell what was true because everything felt correct. Now, my experience has been that the still small voice was available to me, but lost in a noise so loud that if I could hear it, it was quickly drowned out by all of the other voices and feelings. Now, the additional problem I had during my episodes was that I never felt motivated to do something for the right reason. In depression and anxiety mode, I often acted out of fear or guilt rather than love and loyalty. And in the mania mode, my actions are, were more generally selfishly motivated. Sure, there are times and were times when I did feel like I was partially motivated for the right reasons, but I would say they were probably more rare than I would like to admit. Now, I know that this might sound maybe even a little self-serving, but as the illness has been removed from me, well, at least the bipolar and the deep depressions, I have really felt that the Lord accepted my offerings and my actions without the faithful motivation during those many rough years that I had. From the point of view of pure justice, it would be unjust to give someone an illness that alters motivation and faith so drastically and then expect them to be fully motivated and faithful for the right reasons. Now, I think that mercy and grace have a significant role to fill when mental illness strikes, and we simply cannot obey for the right reasons. Now, I fully believe that the Lord accepts those offerings as if we had obeyed for all the right reasons. Now, I may be wrong in my assessment, but my understanding of justice and mercy, and of course the Lord, seems to confirm what I believe. Now, in addition to this problem of motivation and faith, and the inability to hear the still small 
promptings is an additional problem of living with motivations that are simply not heavenly in their nature. Depression, mania, and anxiety do not provide for heavenly feelings. More often, I have described them as hellish feelings. They are guilt, pain, worry, anxiousness, fearfulness, overconfidence, unloving, unkind, unforgiving. They feel very much like sin in almost every aspect of it, except no sin is yet involved. When you possess such feelings for any real length of time, you begin to lose hope, faith, and love, and that includes loving yourself and who you are. If you're going to feel sinful and terrible before and after an event, then there's no need to try to do anything such as go to church, read scriptures, and help someone who needs it. I found it difficult even seeing others' needs, much less reacting to them. I often walked more in a foggy haze and spent so much time taking care of myself just to stay alive that I rarely had much time or effort to give my family. So how do you act when everything you do feels like sin? When you factually know what is right, but really have no desire to do what is right. When you are lost in an emotionally dead world, but factually know that you need to help your neighbor and love those around you. What do you do when you can't feel love, much less give it? You do your best, and you let the Lord take care of the rest. What does that mean in a practical sense? Often that means going through the motions without desire, serving without the immediate, re- immediate feelings of reward, struggling without entirely knowing if you're doing enough. And trust me, you are doing enough. Working rationally through a problem and then getting help from someone else to solve it spiritually and confirm it. Listening for the Spirit, even though you might not hear it very often. Trusting when you don't have desires to trust. And even hoping that when it's all over, your efforts will be rewarded. Even if you can't feel it in the present. Are you going to fail at times? Yes, you're going to regularly fail. But all you need to do is get back up and move forward, and even if forward is more of a shuffle of the feet rather than a runner's stride. Trust me, you really are enough for the Lord. So what are my conclusions from all of this talk of sin? One, there must be a level of mercy equal in proportion to the illness. For those who suffer under its effects, the Lord can only expect that you will do your best given the weakness and the structure He has given your life. If you're doing your best, the Lord does take care of the rest. Now, given what I have just said in number one, this is number two, sin under the duress of mental illness is treated differently from sin that is not under the stresses of the illness. This doesn't mean that sin does not exist while we suffer through mental illness. Sin is sin. But the overall punishment aspect is restricted through the atonement to match the motivation and desire available to the person. Meaning the same sin between two persons one having a mental illness and the other not having a mental illness will be treated very differently at the judgment bar. Sin requires knowledge and a confirmation of the truth, and this is number three. If the confirmation is unavailable and the daily guidance seriously muted, the Lord must take into account how much was really known at the time one committed the sin, both in the sense of factual understanding and really confirmational understanding. What does this mean in the end for those of us who suffer? The easy answer is that mental illness will be taken into account when we come face-to-face with the Savior for judgment, and we will find great mercies applied to our circumstances, even if we've done just the smallest part. 
Now, this should give anyone who suffers great hope of obtaining eternal life with the Father, even when their illness does not allow for the progress, service, and actions they desire. In the end, it is as I have always said. Do your part, fight the fight, and the Lord will do the rest. We'll talk to you next week.